I'm turning today to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6 and verse 47. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 6, verse 47. And when even was come, the ship was in the midst of the sea, and he alone on the land, and he saw them toiling in rowing. And our subject this morning will be having spiritual reality. And following the feeding of the 5,000, we come to this passage of the last part of Mark chapter 6. I'm going to begin by looking at verse 43. Straightway, he, Christ, constrained his disciples to get into the ship and to go to the other side before unto Bethsaida. This is another Bethsaida on the other side of the lake beyond Capernaum while he sent away the people. And when he had sent them away, he departed into a mountain to pray. And he was there while the disciples rowed across the sea, the lake. They had to row because there was a storm and a fierce wind was blowing in the wrong direction. And they found themselves toiling against the wind. And when we put the record of the Gospel of Matthew alongside Mark and references in the Gospel of John, chapter 6, we find that uh, they had been rowing, well, possibly for up to seven hours. The wind was so strong, and in the words of the King James Version, contrary to them, and the sea also very boisterous. And they'd really only got halfway. And just to try to picture it, this is an alarming situation. They were used to that sea, but now they're having to row and row so furiously just to remain almost in the same position. And now exhausted, and it's dark, and it's night. Yet curiously, we read this in verse 48, and he saw them toiling in rowing. Well, where was the Lord? He was in Bethsaida, Julia. It was night. It was also stormy. It was quite impossible for him to see the disciples in the middle of the northern end of the lake. But nevertheless, he saw them. He saw them not in his human nature, but he saw them as God. He was God and man. And he saw them. And the narrative seems to imply that he particularly set his eyes upon them because they were in trouble. They were toiling. They were laboring, making such heavy weather in dangerous conditions. So all the more, he saw them. And there's a wonderful picture in that for us, even as we begin. The Lord sees, and particularly when we're in trial or distress. It's between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. The narrative tells us it's the fourth watch. 
and he came to them. Verse 48, he saw them toiling and rowing, for the wind was contrary unto them, and about the fourth watch of the night he cometh unto them, walking upon the sea, and would have passed by them. But they were alarmed. Well, you know the narrative, I'm sure. Verse 49, when they saw him walking upon the sea, they supposed it had been a spirit and cried out, for they all saw him and were troubled. What did they imagine? They saw him in the moonlight, presumably. He came very near to them. Some of them, if not all, must have seen that it was his form, that it was Christ the Lord. Well, then what did they think? That he died? That the mob that was surrounding him to seize him, to make him king in Bethsaida, Julia, the thousands of people that it had led to trouble when he dismissed them and sent the disciples across the lake? Is it fair possible to assume that they thought that he'd been killed, that he'd died? Or was it that they thought they saw a spirit, just a phantom? That's the Greek word. Our version of it in English language is a phantom, a spirit, something terrifying and frightening, which in their local superstition meant that they were due to die, seeing such things, for they all saw him and were troubled. In Matthew's gospel, a verb is used which indicates they didn't cry, they screamed in terror. They were alarmed so much. And immediately he talked with them, he addressed them. He was that close that they could hear him and see him above the storm. And he said unto them, it's at the end of verse 50, well, three things, really, he said. Be of good cheer. That's our King James translation. Uh, the idea of good cheer translates the Greek for courage. Don't fear. Don't be afraid. Have courage. That was the first thing Christ said to them. Be confident that all will turn out well. Because... You're my disciples, because I am here. So you be confident in a good outcome. That's the first thing he says. Perhaps that's the first thing that he says to us in times of trial and difficulty, grief and hardship. Be confident of a good outcome. Eventually, come call upon me, pray. Be of good cheer, perhaps, is uh, not quite hitting the mark. Don't fear, don't be afraid. It is I. Some of the greatest words imaginable that Christ says, it is I. They should spell to us tremendous encouragement and comfort. Should have done to the disciples. It is me, Christ says. I am here. That should have settled everything, settled their fears, their anxiety, pulled them round immediately. 
But this is the problem. They don't really appreciate who he is. They followed him. They believe in a, him, but they wrongly assume that he's going to be some kind of political messiah, some kind of earthly deliverer. They haven't grasped who he is, that he is the second person of the triune Godhead. He's the Son of God, equal with the Father, incarnate. It is I, it is me. But they don't see the significance of that. They've seen the miracles, many miracles. And they have regarded them as wonderful spectacles. He obviously has power from God to do great things. But they didn't see him, who he was, his status, his divine being, his special character, that he was uniquely God, man, and that he'd come to be the redeemer of the world and possessed all power and all knowledge. They didn't grasp him. He was just their hero, their mighty miracle worker, the one who they were following, who might put everything to right. But they didn't grasp who he was. Be of good cheer, don't be afraid. It is I. His walking upon the water and his coming to them in the vessel and the instant peace that resulted is going to do much to convince them. It is I. Be not afraid. Don't fear the waves or the wind. Don't fear apparitions or phantoms. Supposedly, be not afraid of anything. I am with you. Verse 51, And he went up unto them into the ship, and the wind ceased. And look at this. Our King James Version labors this, uh, and rightly so. Modern versions tend to telescope this into one word. They were amazed in themselves beyond measure and wondered. That's tremendous. That gets across their full astonishment. Realization is dawning. Who he is. Are there friends here? And you're seeking Christ? And you've repented of your sin? And you've believed in him? And you felt that first wave of assurance that you were forgiven and that you were his and you've been so happy. And then you've got up a morning or two later and it's gone. Now perhaps you stumble and fall and sin in some way. And Satan comes and he says, yes, but if you had been converted, you wouldn't have done that. You wouldn't have said that. You are not converted. What you've had is just, well, you've just assented to Christ. You've said you believed in him, but he hasn't accepted you. He hasn't changed you. You're in the position that the disciples were in. He is the one we're following 
He does great things and marvelous things. But you're not appreciating him. When you had that first wave of assurance and you believed in him, from that time onward, your assignment was to think of him. He's received you. The one who's moved in your heart and who's called you, he's forgiven you, he's received you. Think of him. He is God. He is faithful. Faithful to his promise. I've believed. I've repented. Therefore, he will have saved me because he is infallible and faithful and God. You haven't considered who he is and his heart of love and his power to hold you and to save you. They were sore amazed in themselves beyond measure and wondered. For they considered not, verse 52, the miracle of the loaves, for their heart was hardened. What does that mean? They considered not the miracle of the loaves, the feeding of the 5,000. Well, that was just men, including the women and children, surely, easily 10,000. That creation miracle, whereby Christ just broke the loaves and they multiplied under his hand in the baskets, presumably carried by the disciples. The loaves and the fishes went on multiplying until everybody was fed. They didn't consider, they didn't think about this miracle. They said, in this modern terminology, wow, what a marvelous thing. But they didn't think about it. So it didn't speak to them. They didn't get the lessons of the miracle that Christ had created a vast amount of food, that he was God and creator and had all power. He had commanded the people to be sat on the ground when there was no food in sight, no carts carrying supplies, no prospects. They were in a desert place, remote from places where they could obtain food. And yet, once he began to distribute it, it went on and on. And everybody who obeyed him, everybody who sat down, five to ten thousand, maybe even more, were fed. Not one was left out. Not one was disappointed. Not one was turned away. And it was a great meal they were fed. They hadn't eaten since breakfast. It was now towards evening. They had long walks of many miles to get home. It was substantial. And no one was disappointed. If they thought about that, he is God. He will be faithful to his promise. If he has called us and told us we shall be fishers of men and we shall train others, he cannot fail. He's creator, God. His word is perfect and true and faithful. 
they considered not the miracle. They saw it, what a spectacle, how astonishing he is, but they didn't learn from it. Ah, yes, when we understand, he commanded them to sit down. All the thousands who obeyed, he honored his word. He's faithful and infallible. If they'd considered the implications and the lessons of the miracle, they would not have been shattered by the apparent phantom, the impossibility that this was Christ who had come to them. And so it is when we're seeking Christ. Consider him. You've come to him. I'm repeating this. You've repented. You've yielded to him wholeheartedly. Therefore, he will save you. There is no question about it. That wave of assurance you had is perfectly true and valid and authentic. You are saved. Don't start forgetting who he is. The moment Satan throws in his arrows of doubt, So we're looking at the miracle of the walking on the water. But I want to go over to Matthew's Gospel just for a moment because Mark doesn't mention Peter's attempt to go to Christ walking on the water. And the question is often asked, why does Mark leave it out? And there are various answers given. One answer, for example, is, oh, well, we know that Mark's gospel is really Peter's own gospel. Mark was the penman, the secretary, but Peter is behind it, and that's true. And therefore, Peter was too, presumed to be too modest to mention his own encounter of walking on the water. But I don't think that's the explanation. The explanation is quite simple. As I mentioned this when we started studying Mark's gospel. Mark's gospel was intended to be an evangelistic tract. It has an entirely evangelistic intent. It passes over a number of things that aren't directly linked to its evangelistic purpose. And it takes you from miracle to miracle, from wonder to wonder, and from things one narrow event to another that directly address the evangelistic purpose of the gospel. And that's the reason why I'm sure by inspiration Mark left out what I'm turning to now in Matthew's gospel, chapter 14. And uh, you might like to uh, turn to it also. Uh, Going down to verse 26, when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, it is a spirit. And they cried out the screaming word for fear. Straightway Jesus spake unto them, be of good cheer, don't be afraid, it is I, be not afraid. And verse 28, Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come unto thee on the water and he said come well what Peter did was admirable it is characteristic of Peter 
He wants to go to him, walking on the water, perhaps just a few yards, not very far. But he does ask for authority. He doesn't get over the side of the vessel and proceed to attempt to do it. He specifically asks, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come unto thee on the water. And he receives his authority. He's commissioned to come. The Lord says it. And he said, come. Well, there you are. He goes in obedience to Christ. He did not presume anything. He asked for authority. He received it. He complied. He went. Verse 30. But when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, his feet, his shins, perhaps... And he immediately cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him and said unto him, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? Little faith. In other words, he had faith. He had faith to obey, to step out, but the faith wasn't sustained. It was little faith, exercised only for a few moments and then thrown down by the wind and the waves, by fear. And we tend to say, ah, we know what happened to Peter. And it's put like this. He took his eyes off the Lord and so he sank. But don't you see, it's not enough to say that. What good would it have done if Peter had continued to stare at the Lord? Staring at the Lord wouldn't have helped him. Just physically looking at him wouldn't have helped him. So it isn't good enough to say he sank because he took his eyes off the Lord Unless you mean it as a metaphor. He took his eyes off the Lord. Now it's valid to say that if you mean this much. He took his eyes off the Lord because he momentarily forgot or never fully understood who he was. The Lord was there. The God-man, the Son of God, Not just a prophet, not just a miracle worker, but he forgot who he was. The infallible God was with him. Now, if by taking his eyes off the Lord, that's what you mean to say, that's fine. If you only mean he physically took his eyes off the Lord, that's pointless. That wouldn't have helped just looking. What did he understand about the Lord? Did he understand that he was absolutely faithful? Coming back to the feeding of the 5,000, every single person who obeyed and sat on the grass and waited patiently, in faith if you like, was fed. 
If Christ makes a promise, he keeps it. If Christ says, come, you're safe. He will sustain you. He will keep you. If that's what he, in that sense, he took his eyes off the Lord. He forgot the divinity of Christ, the faithfulness of Christ. Our seeker who is in trouble and tempted to doubt his or her salvation is forgetting the faithfulness of Christ. He always keeps his promise. If he says, come, you're safe. If he says, repent and you do so, you're safe. If he says, yield your life to me and you do so with a sincere heart, you're safe. That's the meaning of the passage that we're looking at today. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him and said, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? And when they were come into the ship, the wind ceased. I go back to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6 and verse 51, and he went up unto them into the ship and the wind ceased and they were sore amazed in themselves beyond measure and wondered now they're beginning to grasp who he is and they wonder and they are beginning now to consider the miracle of the loaves and the miracle of the walking on the sea this is what counts this is what matters And verse 53, when they had passed over, they came into the land of Gennesaret and drew to the shore. What's the purpose of Christ walking on the water? Well, of course, it is to establish his divinity. All the miracles establish his divinity. But aside from that supreme and most important thing, what are the purposes Well, from the distinctive purposes of his walking on the water and coming to them in their distress are as follows, in addition to proving and demonstrating his divinity. First, his disciples are always in his view. He is at Bethsaida Julius. It is night. They are miles away, but he still sees them. So that's the first thing, aside from his divinity. We are always in his view. The second thing is that he comes to us, especially in times of trial. He comes and walks and approaches us. The third thing is the walking on the water, is Christ fulfilling the types and the shadows of the Old Testament. He fulfills them all. The type of the parting of the Red Sea, so that the people of God can cross. The type of the parting of Jordan, the waters of Jordan. They speak of Christ. It is inevitable that at some time in his ministry he's going to demonstrate this to the disciples and he's going to come to them 
walking on the water, however turbulent. He is the fulfilling fulfillment of the types, and he's the fulfilling person of all the promises. You know, there is a lot about water in the Old Testament. The metaphor of water and seas and violent seas is used a great deal, especially in the Psalms and especially in the book of the prophet Isaiah. It is almost inevitable that Christ at some time would walk on water because he shows himself to the disciples to be the one who fulfills all the promises as well as the types of the Old Testament. Thy way is in the sea, and thy path in the great waters, says the psalmist. The Lord on high is mightier than the noise of many waters. And then uh, Isaiah, he is above the bread of adversity and the waters of affliction. We could quote many great statements from Isaiah. Art thou not he that hath made the depths of the sea a way for the ransomed to pass over? He's the fulfillment of all these promises. It was inevitable that at some stage he would walk triumphantly on the water. And then a fifth purpose of the uh, walking on the water, well, it is the international progress of the gospel. All too soon, Christ, uh, his earthly ministry will be over. He'll go to Calvary's cross. He'll suffer and die for his own. He'll rise again from the dead and then be seated at the right hand of God and the gospel will go forth the church will be formally constituted on the day of Pentecost and the gospel will go out among the nations now the uh, metaphor for internationalism in the Old Testament is the sea the crossing of the sea and Christ will walk on the waters and the disciples will look back on this and they'll say this was just a foreshadowing of the travel of the gospel throughout the world among the Gentile nations. But then there's a, another purpose of the walking on the water. Just like the feeding of the 5,000, it has an evangelistic purpose. And the events of, that we've been considering today can be shown to depict and to picture the way of salvation. Look at it like this. You wish for, for there to be an evangelistic sermon based upon the miracle of Christ walking on the water? Well, it's very obvious. Here are the disciples away from Christ, apart from him, making heavy weather, getting into danger, getting nowhere, rowing, making no progress, seven hours and yet only halfway across the lake, and the storm is brewing and they are exhausted, without doubt. What a picture 
of the life away from God. Toiling through this world. Oh, yes, there's times of happiness, times of elation, times of enjoyment, but looking at life as a whole. Well, we go through life and we have family joys and many happy times, but overall, there's the aging process and we're all getting older and wondering what it's all been for. And there are all the disappointments and the heartaches and we're no nearer heaven, no nearer the discovery of God and eternal things, making heavy weather. Look at it any way you like. But you see the disciples away from God, toiling, laboring, becoming exhausted, getting nowhere. And you can extract from that a picture of the life without God, without a destination, without meaning, without purpose. But Christ draws near, and you have encapsulated in what he says to the disciples a gospel presentation. Don't fear. Don't be afraid. Think, see what Christ can do. He is the Son of God. He's come to suffer and to die for sinners. You can obtain from him forgiveness and new life and new strength and spiritual life and be speeded to your destination. You have to know him, come to him, believe in him. It is I. Be not afraid of aging, of death, of uh, things which now you're in ignorance. For they considered not the miracle of the loaves. Their hearts were hardened, calloused over, stone-like. That's what's happened to us. Brainwashed by the world. Persuaded to think as atheists. Our hearts calloused over, resistant to God, thinking about Christ and salvation. We don't want to hear those things. All these elements are here. So we are hardened, resistant, calloused over. But Christ comes. We understand who he is, what he's done for sinners. And as soon as he is admitted to the vessel, as soon as he gets ashore in John's gospel, another miracle. They are instantly at land. It's unmistakable in John's gospel. They're halfway across the lake. They're exhausted. But when Christ gets into the vessel, they are instantly at their landing point. The journey is complete. That's a picture of salvation, surely. One minute so far from God, heart closed, resistant to him, calloused over, hardened, then I begin to learn of Christ and grasp who he is and what he's done and the call of salvation. And when I repent and receive him, immediately I arrive. I am born again. I have a new nature, a new heart. I am in the kingdom of God. It didn't take me the rest of my life to get there. I didn't have to earn it and deserve it. I was immediately 
with him in the kingdom of Christ, waiting only the day when I would see him face to face. So we can even draw the elements of the gospel from the picture of the miracle of walking upon the water. All these things are here for us to consider. They all saw him. They were troubled. But the key words, be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. If you have a problem in this coming week, should you be visited by tragedy or grief, should you be diagnosed with some serious illness, should friends or family let you down in some way, and there be deep disappointments, trials arise of any kind, don't be afraid, be confident that with Christ he will see you through and there will be blessing in the outcome. It is I, consider him, the Christ who has called you and saved you and made promises to you, who is faithful to his word. It is I, be not afraid. Wonderful words. It is I. They may be words for you even this week.